Welcome to a special edition of the Underground Bunker Podcast. I'm Tony Ortega, and I'm currently covering the Danny Masterson trial in Los Angeles. The trial's first week of testimony wrapped up yesterday with a shortened Friday session that started late and ended early at only about three in the afternoon, but it still managed to produce a couple of bombshells, which we talked about in the short video we released outside the courthouse. And then last night, we thought we'd review some of the other highlights of this week with someone else who was in the courtroom with us, and that's Jeffrey Augustine. Jeffrey Augustine, what a week we've had here at the Danny Masterson trial. Uh, thanks for joining me on this special episode. Oh, it's my pleasure, Tony. And it was an incredible week at L.A. Downtown Criminal Court uh, watching the Masterson trial. Right. I mean, last week was fun. The jury jury selection was fun for me personally because they had uh, asked us to apply for badges. And it turned out that only I and one other journalist had applied to be pool reporters for jury selection. And so I took several days and she took a day. And so that meant for some some of the time, I was the only reporter in the whole room. And um, I mean, it was just jury selection, but I still, I was learning a lot. It was a lot of fun. And then once things started for real this week, um, I guess Harvey Weinstein's getting more attention because we've had room. And that, the nice thing about that is you've been able to join us. Oh, yeah. I wasn't there for jury selection. I, had to, I was winding up a case here, but uh, I've been here every day since trial began from opening gavel and uh, it, it's, it's quite intense. The, 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 the overriding feeling for me is it's very intense. This is a very serious legal matter, obviously. And it was very intense. And, uh, you know, opening, as it opened, you know, the reality hit Danny Masterson. He is on trial in criminal court. And, and oh, you I don't, began I, I don't, I, I don't know. I, 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 the one thing I'd credit him with is he's, he's a cool customer. He really hasn't uh, shown any kind of emotion one way or the other. And in fact, I, I remarked how during jury selection, he was actually saying morning everyone to all the jurors and the judge was letting him get away with it. And uh, opening statements, testimony. I mean, you know, he's, he's just sitting there taking it all in. He's not making any faces. He's not showing any concern. Uh, I, I mean, look, uh, his his job right now is just to sit there and, and, and not say anything, and he's doing fine. Yeah, I have a different take from, from watching him. I can see the tension on his face. I see, uh, you know, but I, I mean, I was in sales 30 years. I read people's faces, body language, nuance, something I want to talk about especially the body language of uh, his attorney, Philip Cohen. But I could see him following things very closely. So he, he might appear to be outwardly cool, but I remember he's an actor. Okay, but internally, you know, internally I could see, I could sense the tension with him and the way he, the way he walked, the way he interacted with people. So that's, that's my observation, Tony. You know, I don't know. I mean, I mean, not not only has he not really, you know, done anything overt, he's got the big family there. I mean, they're 
we know, I mean, I knew this quite a while ago. I was told by people that knew him really well that his family is incredibly tight. They'll stick behind him no matter what. And uh, they've made a big show every day. His brothers and sisters are there, his mother, his wife, his wife's sister, Mackenzie Phillips, his, his wife's uh, brother-in-law, Billy Baldwin. Um, you know, they've done their best to give the impression that, you know, they're behind him and they believe him. Uh, I've been asked by other journalists if I thought that might affect the jury. I don't really think so. I, I, I watch them as they come in and out, and they really don't look at the Masterson clan at all. They don't seem starstruck or anything like that. So, you know, I, 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 I don't blame the family for showing up in large numbers, and, but I don't think it's going to get them much. No, they're there. They are absolutely there to support Danny, um, because it doesn't it doesn't have any impact on the courtroom itself. I mean, when you're there, you're looking at you know Masterson. Obviously, he's being discussed, and what what he is accused of doing is being discussed. So, it is interesting that you know, like as you say, they're very tight, and watching the evolution from. You know, Danny just several years ago was saying that he, the women are just in it for the money and he's going to sue them after he's cleared. Right. And as the net has drawn tighter. Well, for example, we learned uh, of a grand jury talking to Marty Singer. Yeah. And of, uh, uh, you mentioned in, in your uh, Substack today that, uh, someone who was going to be uh, uh, become a percipient witness. Um, Sean Fabos. Yes, thank you. Sean Fabos was going from, you know, a, a fact witness to a percipient witness. And so so the twists and turns in a very short time, you know, I'm, I'm watching Danny with all the developments. And here's here's something I noticed early on, almost the first thing that, his attorney, Philip Cohen, did was ask for a mistrial. And the reason I, I, I note this is this is the exact same thing Thomas Messero did every step of the way in uh, prelim, preliminary criminal trial. Uh, Messero was trying to get the case thrown out, case dismissed, charges dropped. And, and you, you know, you covered that. So it's almost like the attorneys, first Messero, and then in his turn, uh, Cohen, they're going for the low-hanging fruit to see if there's an easy kill. There's not. The case is not going to go away. And so I watched I watched Masterson when Cohen moved for a mistrial, and the judge said no. And I saw I saw the color drain from his face. So, but I'm I'm studying him in that way. I'm I'm looking at the judge's expressions, and it's interesting to watch and feel the energy in the room because it it, it is. At least I'm feeling it intense. Do you think that Masterson thinks he's going to walk away? Well, based on what people have told me who know him really well, he's a very confident guy in himself. And he kind of, people who know him say that he's got that sort of, he gives that sort of sense that things are going to go his way. So I have a feeling that, he and his family are thinking to themselves, look, these women are lying. We got a good attorney. 
once we turn him loose on them, they're going to look terrible. This jury's going to quit. We're going to walk out of there. I, you know, I'm sure that's what they're telling each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think he was, I think the first sign that Danny was actually in some trouble with this was that you've got the deputy DA Mueller who does not normally take celebrity cases. Because you remember the dis, the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office does not exactly have the best track record in celebrity cases. But you've got a guy who takes more serious cases and doesn't do celebrity stuff. And then he's paired up with a judge who's just simply remarkable. She's she's just something to watch. And this is not the first time the two of them have been involved in a serious case. There was a case last year that Mueller had in Judge Olmedo's courtroom. Very complex. Uh, has had some definite similarities to the Danny Madison case. And uh, Mueller was able to get a, like a 50-year sentence in that case. So watching them early on in this process, I got the feeling that Judge Olmedo's very fair. She admonishes both sides. But that this was no joke. You know, this was not Judge Ito. This was not, you know, some these these two know how to move a case along. And that's been probably the biggest surprise so far. If, if you know, the first week of testimony in, in this trial is just how good Judge Omeda was on her word that she makes things move along. I mean, the Harvey Weinstein trial started a day before the Danny Masson trial, and they're still trying to seat a jury. The Danny Masterson trial has seated a jury, had both opening statements, had the first witness direct, cross-examination, and redirect, and we're already ready for our second witness on Monday. So, I mean, this Judge Omeda, and, and, and part of the secret is there was a great moment uh, either yesterday or the day before, where this is what she she doesn't put up with in her case in her court, and she did this to Cohen a couple of times. There's this classic thing that defense attorneys do and prosecutors, and they'll say, "Jeffrey, uh, Jeffrey, did you uh, did you graduate high school?" And and you'd say yes. And then they say, so it's your testimony that you graduated high school. See, a lot of attorneys love to do that. They 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 ask you the question and then they ask it again just just for drama and and you know to kind of shove it down your throat. Right. right? Yeah. She will not put up with that. And she made that so clear they're not gonna waste time. And just by eliminating that where you eliminate the grab standing by attorneys with repetition speeds things up remarkably. I think that's part of the secret to why things move along so well in her courtroom. And she doesn't put up with it on either side. She was admonishing Mueller a lot this week about don't restate the testimony, get to the question. Because Mueller would do these windups, right? He'd say, now, you testified that on June 6, 2004, you went to the LAPD. And my question is, and she's like, you don't need any of that. Just get to the question. And so she's really ridden him hard on that. 
and then and then she's eliminated Cohen's ability to kind of re repeat himself. And that's why I think they get through things so quickly there. So that's been really remarkable to see. And um, I, I mean, I'm happy for it. Today, the sort of fun moment, and the reporters were really looking at each other. I saw this, you know, we're sitting in the back row, was that um, at one point, Judge Omedo today said, now I know you attorneys think we've got another four weeks to go in this trial. I think we've only got two more. And like I said, all the reporters looked at each other like, really? Uh, that's great news. I would I would love to be out of here by like the first week of November. That would be great. So um, I, I, I have a feeling she's right. So, of course, that's got to make Danny nervous. I mean, hey, just think about how nervous everyone's going to be as we wait to hear the verdict from the jury. My goodness. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, you know, my my. Uh view of, of uh, Judge Almeida, she's, she's a legal scholar, outstanding legal scholar. And she's shown it many times. For example, um, Cohen, and this is another uh, tactic defense uh, attorneys will use. And they do it at risk to themselves, but they think they can get away with it, right? Yeah. They'll blurt something out that has nothing to do, it's almost an ambush. So he said to Jane Doe one, did you pee in front of the restaurant? And you, you remember yeah. when that happened? Oh, yeah. I talked about it on uh, my video yeah. a couple days ago. Yeah. Now, when he said that, I was furious, just as a listener, at the, at the degrading nature. The, the way he said it was very degrading and insulting. Judge Almeida stopped court, sent the jury out, sent Jane Doe out. And this is what's interesting, what I want our listeners to know. A lot of what Judge Almeida is doing when, the, when she sends the jury out, Jane Doe out, and she's just talking to the attorneys. But we get to sit there and listen as the public and as the media. Right. She, she, she took Cohen to task. She said, you're impossible violation of California Evidence Code 783 and 1103. And, she, and he tried to say, well, saying that someone peed in front of a restaurant is no different than saying the water is cold. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that is the worst thing to say. She said, no, they're not, they're not alike at all. They're nothing alike. And she told him she didn't, you know, she didn't want this. And it wasn't allowed because it violated evidence codes. And this was very serious. This is very serious. But during these breaks, when she's talking to the attorney, she's whittling down. And this is why, to your point, it's not going to go forward. It's going to go two. We both watched today as she said, you know, where are you headed with this? Where do you want to go when we go back, you know, on trial? And she's saying, no, 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 I'll rule on that over lunch. I'll read this over lunch. So she's very fast at reading and making decisions about what may or may not be done. She's almost telling them what the boundaries are. Well, that's what she's doing. She's telling what the boundaries are for the next part of when they go back into criminal trial, right? So she mm -hmm. moves along stuff fast. Another thing she did during the break, uh, there was a technical question. She said, I believe that comes in Section 800 of the Evidence Code, and she's flipping through her book, and then she reads actual case law yeah. because uh, Mr. Cohen 
said something and she said, no, I dare you to find me a case where it says anything like that. Yeah. Find me a case anywhere. And then she was actually able to, just by memory, to, she grabbed her book and flipped and read from case law. So her knowledge of the case itself is astounding, Tony. She knows this case. She's read everything on it. And her ability to discipline the attorneys, that means keep them in line and tell them what she will allow, what she won't allow before we go back into active you know, trial. So she knows how to manage a courtroom. She's obviously in control. Um, she's, and I can watch her, Cohen arguing with her. And I think that Cohen, he, he's obviously a sharp guy. He's probably dealt with lesser judges where he's got away with things. He's not getting away with Judge Lomito because simply put, he is not her intellectual equal in terms of knowing the law, knowing procedure. He's not her equal. And that's why well, she's so, she's, Yeah, she does her homework and that's it's very impressive. Look, he's a smart guy. I, I had one attorney tell me after, you know, they've been reading my transcript, the articles and stuff. One attorney said to me, Philip Cohen is a very good lawyer with a very bad case. Hmm. And I think there's something to that. Um, it's, I, I, I won't, you know, one thing that sticks in my mind from jury selection, I know we're way past that now, but there's still a few things, was the man who... Uh, Judge Cohen, I mean, Judge Olmedo was going through and talking to each individual juror to follow up on their questionnaire. And she got to this one juror and he said, three charges, three different women. And he admitted he had a real hard time with presumption of innocence. And I remember thinking about that. It's like, I know all the all the I know all the jurors. Of course, he was excused right away, but I know the jurors on the jury right now all told Judge Olmedo they could be fair and partial. But Cohen had a point when he said there's a presumption of guilt. Everyone says the you know there's a presumption of innocence, and he's got his three empty jars, and you know people need to you know they people has a big burden. But there is a presumption of guilt. And, and, you know, who finds themselves in trial because they're accused of raping three different women? So, um, yeah, it, it's it's a tough case. And uh, that's why I felt that today's situation was so remarkable. One thing I didn't mention in my video that I, I knew you were going to want to talk about was... Um, you know, Omedo has has really dressed down both attorneys. Uh, the first day of testimony, she really went after Mueller for introducing too much Scientology too quickly. Correct. Uh, yeah. And just dressed him down. But since then, he's been able to put in just about as much Scientology as he wanted. He just he just needed to do it in a way that made better sense for her. So that's all turned out fine. And sure. then uh, yesterday, it was Cohen's turn. When I say yesterday, it's, uh, it was Thursday. On Thursday, it was Cohen's turn because of that that question about peeing in the street. And what he was trying to do was, uh, and you could tell by the way he asked it. It's, it's the, He has a tell 
and I know you've you've observed some physical ones, but he has a vocal tell, and that is when he knows he's asking a legitimate question. He takes his time. He he likes to stride around, and he doesn't mind a big wind up. He he tends to put together big, you know, questions. And he'll say, on June 6, 2004, when you spoke to Detective Vargas or Detective Schlegel and you told him about this and that, did you actually say this? That's kind of his tone and his cadence. And, and it, it, it's, it, he gives an impression that he's thought of the question. He believes that this is a good question and he wants, you know, and he wants to come off as a reasonable lawyer asking a reasonable question, even though it's cross-examination. But then every once in a while, when he knows he's asking a garbage question that's probably going to get objected to, that's that's probably based on rumors or bullshit, he has a completely different tone. And that's how that came across. Is it true? It's, 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 it's quick. Instead of the slow thing, it's very quick. Is it true that night that you peed in the street? When he does that, he's so betrayed that he knows he's at, he's, he's what he's saying is just garbage, and and that he's probably going to get smacked for it. But that you know, anyway, that's what happened. And the situation was that you know Jane Doe one had testified that on that night of April twenty, it was that was April twenty fourth, two thousand three when she had gone out with some friends to a birthday party and then later went to Mastin's house, that she hadn't had anything to drink all night. She got to Mastin's, had her had the drink that then made her feel suspiciously intoxicated. So, you know, Cohen would love to prove that she'd been drinking all night. And so that's why he asked about peeing in the street, because it seems to imply that maybe she was drinking alcohol, had to go real bad and just, you know, peed on the street. Well, Judge Omedo was... Just, I've never seen her this angry. She was, she like you said, she cleared the jury, and it wasn't a break time. She she cleared the jury just for this, and she lit into him. And you could see, and I and I mentioned on my previous video, I think a male judge would might not even have noticed, but she looked at him, and, and I don't have I don't have the transcript in front of me, but the the gist of what she said was, you know, women have to pee up to drink water. You know, and it was just you could see she just was so personally offended. And she but she also cited case law. She said, look, in California, you cannot ask about a sexual assault victim's prior sexual history or what she wears or what her behavior is. And this would clearly or, fall or, under. Or even or even uh, their uh, use of uh, alcohol or drugs. Right, and use of drugs, right. So, I mean, he had clearly stepped over that line. But then again, I will say, the way he asked it, he knew it. And this was just a, you know, anyway, so that was that was yesterday. But all of that pales. Well, Tony, let me, let, let me go back to what you were saying about how Cohen gives himself away. <clears throat> okay? Well, let's come now, back to that, Jeff. No, no, I know you have okay. some physical tells. Let's come back to that. Yeah. Because the point, because yeah. I know you're going to want to talk about this next thing. All of those, you know, Cohen, I mean, Mueller getting dressed down for Scientology, Cohen getting dressed down for the peeing in the street, all of that is just pales in comparison to what happened today. And, you know, I, I know you were excited about it too. She not only, 
she again cleared the cleared the jury and lit into him. Oh, I mean, lashed him about the way he was treating Jane Doe One, and she said, "You are incredibly condescending." And actually, we talked about this in the car coming back, Jeffrey. I felt she was doing him a favor. Because if he is incredibly condescending, that's not going to play well with the jury. So she's actually doing him a favor. But then the best part was she likened him to a vexatious litigant. Jeffrey, explain what that is and why that's an amazing statement from a judge. Well, in law, a vexatious litigant is someone who abuses the legal process, files lawsuit after lawsuit that are frivolous. So they're really abusing the process by, like, if I filed 125 cases for just nonsense, you know, that I'm declared a vexatious litigant for wasting the court's time, taxpayer money, and I'm not allowed to sue or file anything without the court's permission. So it, it, it means you're not taken seriously. You're wasting the court's time and energy. And you're to such an extent you're not entitled to sue. You don't even belong in the court. You can't even file a piece of paper with the court without their permission. And that, when she likened him to a vexatious litigant, he did he he, you could see it on his face the force of that, being called yeah. a vexatious litigant. No attorney wants to be called a vexatious litigant or be declared a vexatious litigant. Because that has such devastating and catastrophic downstream effects for your career. I mean, typically... You know know what she called him in Scientology terms? She called him a squirrel. Yeah, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Yeah, Uh, and Scientologists will know what we're talking about. She basically called him a squirrel in open court. and, And it was devastating. It certainly was, and um, he had it coming too. He had it coming to him for his uh, for what he did, his conduct, misbehavior in the inside the court. And he's not going to get away with this stuff that he maybe, like I said, he's maybe gotten away with other cases, you know, other judges. Uh, so Judge Lomato could be looking at her computer monitor, but she's listening and taking in everything, and then she stops. Um, something I wanted to note, a couple things I want to note from yesterday, yeah. jumping back to yesterday. Yeah. And, and, and this goes to my observations of Cohen and, and I'm kind of doing this as a, a private investigator, but also when I worked in, in scientific sales, I had to learn to count in, in all, all fields from accounting, warehousing, private investigation, journalism, you know how you have to count when you're doing survey statistics, number of people, that kind of thing. Sure. I, I'm an inveterate counter. I count things. And uh, beginning at 2.53 PM here are my notes. I'm going to go through 14 things in real quick order. And this is Cohen was yesterday. I, I was thinking, does he have any sense of the case? And I made a remark in uh, bunker comments that he lacks coherence. He doesn't have control of the case And here. I'm going to move through beginning at 2.53 p.m. He moves to these 14 things real fast, if you remember. Okay, so Cohen asked about 2017 photos from Jane Doe 1. She's beginning to answer. Then he says, and 
Miss Jane Doe, were you called by LAPD in 2004 informed that your case was a DA reject? And she's trying to answer it, no. And he says, and at that time, did a civil attorney file a, uh, was, did a, civil attorney file a complaint against Masterson on your behalf? I'm thinking, where are you going with this? Then he said, did you receive $400,000? Was there an attorney by this name who received a 25% you know, uh, fee of that money? And did you spend the money quickly, which got an objection to a big objection? Right. And he says, now, Detective Reyes, turning to December 15, 2016, uh, did you call a Detective Reyes? No, she can't even answer. And I made a note here that he cannot form or sustain a line of questioning. Yeah. He appears to be attempting discovery after the fact. And this is what Judge Almeida said. She said, Mr. Cohen, this is trial. This is not discovery. Now, see, this is where this is where he's trying to use criminal trial as discovery to make up for his deficit and losing losing the case. I mean, he's losing control of the case at that time. So I can I knew he was on a fishing trip. Like, in, that's not that's not what that's not what court is. You don't do discovery. Discovery is during discovery. In fact, Judge Almeida has been quick to say that was pre-trial. This is criminal court. During prelim, I was the decider. Now it's the jury, right? And then he moves on. Did you talk to Jane Doe three prior to this? And then he moves on. Did you talk? Did you speak to other alleged victims? Did he tell you to be in contact with us? So he's jumping around, and he did this 14 times, beginning at 2:53. And um, what he does, you're correct. When he his, his body language is that he, when he thinks he's in his element or has control, he paces the courtroom from uh, the defense table over to the prosecution table. He paces back and forth. He does this other thing where he puts his fingertips together and he does steepling. You know, when you uh-huh. put your yep. finger, and he's, yep. he, lo- he looks up to the ceiling, speaking, forming these grandiose questions as if we are there to drink in the eloquence of his intellect. And then he gets shot down. And then so his pacing back and forth across the courtroom narrows. When he gets cornered, he stops pacing and he crosses his arms and he grabs them. He quits pacing. So you're right. When he thinks he has a good question, he does this long windup. But when he doesn't know what he's doing, he's firing off like yesterday. He was firing off these rapid questions that were seemingly unrelated. And he was trying to you know, somehow was build the case, uh, establish things. And then, then he jumped around completely unrelated to a relative, a cousin, right? And, and I couldn't follow him because he's not making any sense. And I think that the judge was looking at him. Did you catch that part where he's jumping around? Well, that's, and I heard that, I heard that from others. I heard that from others that, that, uh, that part of the, reason why he maybe wasn't more effective is that the constant jumping from 2003 to 2017 to 2004 to 2018 i mean i know what he's trying to do i i understand that he he must have talked to them and said look i know people expect us to dig into this whole you know six you know eight eight or 
let's see, 2003 to 2013-year delay. Um, you know, he expected them. But he said, look, all we need to do is, is show how they gave these statements between 2004 and 2016, and then they gave further statements in 2017, 18, and 20, and just compare to show that their stories have changed. That's all we got to do. Forget about the delay. Forget about Scientology. That's what he decided to do. And with and with Jane Doe one in particular, like I was saying last night, is that he felt all he needed to do was show this 2004 LAPD report and how mm-hmm. it's missing so many of the elements in the story she told in testimony. But you know, I I remember the very first day when he started to do that. In fact, because when she finished up. He got to do a little bit of cross-examination on Tuesday night, I think. And, um, yeah, and I remember thinking, oh, is that where he's going? Because I knew there were issues with those early reports. And I knew that the prosecution had answers for those things. And, I look, of course he should try to point out inconsistencies using those early documents. He'd be crazy not to. But what surprised me was he had eliminated all the other approaches so that that's the only thing he was trying to impeach Jane Doe one on, right? Is that since since he eliminated all these other approaches, it's like, okay, we're going to use this 2004 report to destroy her. And the exactly. problem with that, the problem with that is now today the, the, the prosecution brought in this 2003 report that backs her up at least on part of it. And it and it and it helps, you know, increase the credibility with the idea that the 2004 LAPD report itself is problematic. And like I said yesterday, that would not be a big deal if he was coming at them with ten different things, but he's not. That 2004 report was virtually his entire case against her. And now that yeah. she's brought in this other document to question it, I think I think the defense was seriously hurt today. Oh, I agree. I, I, and one of the problems with reliance on police reports, and you saw it yesterday, and there was about seven questions in a row. He tr- he was wanting to read from the police report. Mueller would object based on it's hearsay. because it's hearsay, right. Yeah, but it, that happened seven times in a row, and I watched him cross his arms and get frustrated. He's trying to ask a question, but he doesn't seem – you can't argue from police reports. And the judge had to say, Mr. Coyne, your remedy is to call in the officer to testify. Right. You're not allowed to offer hearsay. So he was having trouble forming questions based on hearsay. Now, he's going to have to call in the desk officer. He's going to have to call in some detectives. That's his remedy. So he's very frustrated because, as you astutely pointed out, he has an over-reliance on that 2000 report and perhaps Masterson's confidence as you see it I don't but you do was based on oh yeah all we got to do is go and tear apart this report you walk out of here but you forget there's three victims there's going to be more police reports more evidence but you are correct there is over reliance on Jane Doe 1 on that report 
and as it currently stands, it's hearsay, and he's going to have to get the officer who initially took the desk report in and the detectives. So th there's there's quite a bit of work he has ahead of him, and um, his over-reliance on that police report is going to cost him. So, and I think today we saw that in a very devastating way, as you mentioned. Yeah, it was a rough day for Cohen. Um but you know she also gives it to Mueller, and and she, um, you know she's admonished him quite a bit about the way he asks questions. But I think after this first week, um, it, I don't know what the jury's thinking, but I, I think in general it's it's probably gone pretty well for these women, or at least they don't want, and. Uh, We'll see. I mean, so I I spotted a couple people in the courthouse today because um, I was trying. I asked this morning. I asked. This is Friday night. We're recording this, so it'll come out Saturday morning. But uh, Friday morning, I asked readers, "What do you think? What's going to be the order? Are they going to put the three women in a row and then all the corroborating witnesses, or are they going to do?" A, a, a victim and then her corroborating witnesses and then the next victim. So um, I got kind of confused because the people I saw in the courtroom today, I saw Marty Singer. He walked right by me. I saw Sean Fabos and I saw Jane Doe three in the lobby. So I was really like confused. I was like, so are they following Jane Doe one with Jane Doe three? And if so, why are these corroborating witnesses here? So then it, then it was revealed at the end of the day that the next witness is Marty Singer followed by Sean Fabos. That's all we know. I, and I would think if they're going to do corroborating witnesses of Jane Doe one before Jane Doe three gets to testify, that it's not just going to be Marty Singer and Sean Fabos. I think there's several others. So it's confusing to me why they have Jane Doe 3 at the courthouse already, because I think it's going to be a while before they get to her. But maybe I'm wrong. I mean, with with Omedo, they may go through these witnesses, light, you know, lightning fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I was there, too. I saw uh, Marty Singer walk by and he uh, shot a look at me. Uh, obviously knows who I am, knows who you are. Uh, knows who you oh, I, I, I mean, I had interactions with him, but I don't think he knows yeah. who I am. Oh, he yeah. know he, he. I'm sure he knows who everyone is in that. Look, Marty Singer is very well prepared. He knows who's in the room, but that's my opinion. But what was, but what was very interesting? I thought they were going to put Marty Singer on the stand this afternoon when we when we both saw him. And, but but what happened? Uh, so. Uh, Jane Doe one is dismissed, but, uh, you know, she finishes, they finish with her today, but she's told, you know, to stand by if she gets called back. Right. Yeah. So the jury leaves, Jane Doe leaves. And then we have a, yet another, uh, Judge Almeida conference where the defense seeks to keep Marty Singer out of the Danny Masterson rape case. Right. Now this got really interesting. And um, I expected it because they're, they, I expect it. And I'll tell you why um, on October, Thursday, October 20, if you remember during one of these judge Almeida conferences that Cohen tried to make a move that to keep 
any mention of Masterson drugging, roofing, or doing anything you know related to drugs to his victims, even though the state had not alleged that. Remember, he tried to keep any he wanted to keep any mention of that out of testimony. Yeah, but he got that. Yeah, they, 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 that was that was settled pre-trial that 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 the Judge Omedo ruled that because uh, because Cohen also wanted them to eliminate any mention of being, you know, suspiciously intoxicated because he said there's no evidence of drugging. So they shouldn't even refer to that. And the judge is like, well, I, they can describe how they felt, you know, and if that implies drugging, then that then then they let the jury decide. So they're, you know. He, they cannot say, you know, do you think someone, do you, they can't, you know, Mueller can't ask them, do you think you were drugged? They have no evidence no, of it. No, no. But, you know, Jane Doe one testified. She had half of a drink that Masterson personally handed to her. And within a half hour, she was having breathing difficulties. Couldn't keep her eyes open, was losing consciousness, and then spent a day with diarrhea. I mean, it just it just suggests that maybe there was something in that drink, and they're not going to try to prove it. They're not going to accuse him of it, but it's certainly going to leave an impression in the jury's mind. Well, and she's going to and she's going to let them do that with all three of them. Yeah, and he's he was trying to to get that excluded, which I knew that wasn't going to work because uh, the women are going to testify what they felt and experienced. Right. But but today when he wanted Marty Singer out of the case, that was very intriguing to me because we know that Ken Moxon is in the mix. Scientology attorney right. Ken Moxon is right. in the mix with Singer. Yeah. So what's your take on why Cohen made such a hard move to, to keep Marty Singer out of the case? Well, they've been they've been. Uh... Look, after Jane Doe 1 has testified, we know that there's two witnesses next, and the defense wants them both out. I think they're just objecting to object. But, um, you know, the, the this Marty Singer thing, I you know, I think what they're going to do with him is – look, I think what what is of value to the prosecution as far as the jury is concerned is that she has some unusual claims. I mean, she has some pretty harrowing, crazy things going on in these two attacks from Masterson. And I guess they feel like anything they can corroborate helps hold the whole thing together, right? So so even though, so, so her testimony is after this attack in April, 2003, she went to the church immediately. They put her through this counseling and charged her all kinds of money. And then she went to the IJC and she asked for permission to to file charges. He then sent a letter, um, which is cryptic, but but Scientologists will tell you that what he's telling her is, you can sue him, don't go to the police. But she went to the police anyway in 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 June two thousand four, and then, uh, you know, Shara Lee first wrote about this that 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 the Church of Scientology inundated the LAPD with affidavits calling her a liar. And after three weeks or something, the DA decided there's not a case here and they decided not to pursue it. Um, and then that's when this whole, you know, machination started 
that led to her signing this settlement. And um, basically her testimony was that uh, Julian Swartz, the ethics officer at Celebrity Center, had told her she was she that he had prepared a declare order for her for suing for, for going to the police against Danny. She had he had prepared a declare order. It was sitting on his desk, and she needed to come get it. And at that point, she would be declared suppressive. And you have to understand, they're not putting a lot of testimony on about this, but I can tell you, J, uh, Jane Doe one was incredibly close to her dad and 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 her mom was you know very involved with her mom and the and she was living with them i mean she was only she was 27 or something at the time and um the thought of being declared and and the and her parents were ardent scientologists so the thought the thought of being declared and her parents having to choose between her and the church she really didn't know which way they'd choose. She was terrified. And at this moment, the church said, well, we've got your declare order, or you can go sign this thing, right? And the people that were making this happen were for the church, Julian Swartz and Kendrick Moxon, and for Danny was his attorney, Marty Singer. And remember in her testimony, she testified that uh, after this, this mediation took place, and see, there's, God, I don't know if I'm going to get into all this detail, but... You know, Jeffrey, one of the important things is she was represented by an attorney. Now, I th- we I think um, there's something to keep in mind, and I, I wonder how much of this her dad was arranging. You know, that's kind of been the subtext of that whole chapter, is that it, it seems like her dad, who was a wealthy uh, Scientology, you know, he was a big supporter. He wanted this to go away, and and he was making things happen. But anyway, she did have an attorney, and this attorney worked out some kind of mediation with Marty Singer. But what they're trying to present is that she had nothing to do with it. In fact, once she got there, they made her sit in a room for two hours, and then her attorney finally showed up again. Okay, we've got to come back. And she was taken into a room where this agreement was sitting on a table. Marty Singer was standing there. And she was told, okay, you need to look it over, but, but don't touch it. If you need me to turn the page, I'll do it, Marty told her. And then Marty Singer turned the pages for her. So I think the reason why they're bringing him in is he can testify to that. Now, of course, there's attorney-client privilege. You can't get Marty uh, Singer on the stand and ask him anything about Danny. Uh, that's protected by attorney-client privilege. But you can ask him did you turn the pages for Jane Doe? And if he says yes, see, this is one of these strange details that has now been corroborated, and and that helps to corroborate what she's saying. So I think that's maybe what's going on Monday. Yeah, that's definitely going on with it. I'll 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 add a few things. The notes I made, and, and by the way, I want to say a standard police interrogation technique that's used universally, and. Um, is to put someone in a room that's cold and leave them there for two to three hours. Oh, wow. It break, no, you can watch on YouTube. You can watch the great police interrogators. You put them in a room for two hours, and that's to take away their control. You make it right. cold because when people are cold, it, it changes. It, it, it breaks them down mentally. Uh-huh. So it's a way to shift the power balance. And to me, that's a complete tactic. Uh, 
that lawyers, you know, lawyers can use or anyone, you just keep someone waiting. And often even in business, a power play I had run on me when I was in, in corporate sales is, is when a, a client was mad and I was seeing, say, a vice president of technology, he or she might keep me waiting an hour just to communicate their displeasure mm -hmm. at what my yeah. employer had done, right? I see. So now the other thing that Mueller said, now, now it's important to note, and, and you covered it, that uh, uh, S Marty Singer had to testify before a grand jury about this matter. Yeah. And M Mueller said today that Marty Singer testified to the Masterson settlement particulars with Jane Doe 1. And Singer, during this grand jury testimony, according to Mueller, said he had contact with Bree Schaefer and Jenny Weinman. Right. Now that gets real dangerous because attorney-client privilege covers between Singer and Masterson, but conversations, as the judge pointed out, that he had with Bree Schaefer or Masterson's publicist, Jenny Weinman, those are not covered. And Mueller say, is saying that this settlement goes to motive and bias. And also these people had allegiance to Masterson. That is a reason to cover up for him or even lie. So the judge denied Cohen's request and he allowed the people to call Singer under specified conditions. That, uh, that is particularly what was done in his presence that he has knowledge of, right? So Bree Schaefer and uh, Jenny Wyman, who are key figures in the case, they're not covered by privilege. Well, that was, that and, was, that was something that they argued about pre-trial and the defense wanted to argue that or the defense argued that Jenny Weinman as publicist for Danny and Bree Schaefer, Danny's assistant in talking to Danny's attorney enjoyed some kind of privilege. And Judge Almeida said, Nope, they're not his, they're, they're, they, he's not their attorney. And whatever he said to her is, it said to them is fair game. So, but I, you know, the thought of Marty Singer coming in as a prosecution witness, uh, when his, you know, it's his client sitting there, the defendant on the, in the defendant's chair. I have to wonder if maybe he's worked out something with Mueller, where it's like, okay, I'll come testify to the things that you know help you uh, that you want, but just you got to stay away from certain areas. I wonder if they've worked out some kind of little deal between. Well, we shall wait and see what happens, and 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 and. One other thing I want to bring up toward the end of the, of the day today, October 21, 2022, um, the, uh, during court today, Jane Doe had written a knowledge report. But the parties agreed, the judge ordered that the word knowledge report be redacted from the top right. of the instrument, of the document she wrote. Right, right. And... The copy that um, the copy that uh, Philip Cohen received, he carped about the signature on back was blacked out, and so he wanted to the court to say there was a failure to disclose on this document. <laughs> That's how well, yeah, far he's no, reaching. And, and and I, I you know look he was 
when they brought that document in today, uh, it I could see it from even even sitting in the back row, I could see that <laughs> that uh, Ariel Anson, uh, deputy DA working with uh, Mueller, the copy she, she had had a signature so big I could read it from halfway across the room. Oh, I could and too. That, and yeah. that uh, the, the copy that Philip Cohen had had this black box um, covering up the name, which which was probably more about, you know, protecting anonymity, you know, the anonymity of Jane Doe one, whatever. But uh, he so he he uh, he objected during testimony and said, we'll come back to this. And so after the after the testimony was done, he you know, I guess he was flirting with the idea that maybe something fraudulent had happened or whatever. And Judge Almeida was like, look, it's written in first person. <laughs> I yeah, mean, yeah, she's, who, yeah, she's, who else could it be by, you know? Yeah, she, she said the context makes it clear who, who wrote it. And then yeah. uh, Mueller pointed out that it was attached to a police report that was, I think, Exhibit C, if I could be wrong. And it was there was C1, C2, and C3 documents yeah. attached and, and they all related to Jane Doe. So, so judge Almeida said, no, you're not going to get a failure to disclose. So this is the level to which Cohen, I think is sweating it out. He's looking for anything he can grasp onto. So Marty Singer is going to come in and, and I'm waiting for Monday, Tony, to see what Mr. Singer has to say, and will testify to. Well, like I said, Oak. like I said, I, I think it's probably going to be a pretty limited thing. Marty Singer acknowledging that for whatever reason, uh, they didn't want Jane Doe one to touch the document. He would have to turn the pages for her. That, that corroborates something that seems so unusual that that, I think that goes a long way to helping, you know, corroborating what she's saying in general and that may be valuable to them so it may be something that simple or things could get very weird on monday but you could see uh there was there was definitely uh, some interesting conversation today between judge Omedo and the two sides where she really doesn't want surprises and she said something about that that she she wants these attorneys to tell her what people are going to testify to she wants them to lead those witnesses, um, when I say lead, I don't mean suggesting what they say, but lead in the sense that you you give them a question so that it has a narrow uh, answer you know, and you're not just sort of like opening up so they can speak for a half hour. Um, she's, you know, she won't doesn't want to put up with any kind of time wasting things. So I have a feeling that wh whatever they are going to use Marty Singer for, it's going to be very limited and very quick, but but kind of important. Uh, it'll be very interesting, uh, along with Sean Fabos. Sean Fabos, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So I so I explained that on the video uh, yesterday, yeah. um, right at the very end, uh, with jury was out, the witness was out, everyone's ready to go for the weekend, and and there was another final conversation. Karen Goldstein for the defense was was complaining about some things, and I, I had to shush some of the other reporters because they were packing up their stuff to leave. And I was like, Oh, something's going on. Listen. And, um, uh, the, they were saying that something about Sean Fabos being recorded or something. 
And eventually uh, it became clear that what they were saying is that while Sean Fabos was in court the last two days, and I have seen him in the hallway, that while he was in court, he or his attorney, one or the other, said something to the DA, uh, one of the you know investigators or whatever, that made them realize he just said something we need to get on tape. And so they described, and again, it's, it's Goldstein complaining about all this is why we know it. And they described it, I guess, uh, Thursday afternoon. They had to take an official recording of Sean Fabos giving a statement uh, about some evidence. And that now he's not just, and Judge Almeida revealed, he's not just a what they call a fresh complaint witness who's there to talk about, you know, whatever Jane Doe once said when, when she told him about the attack from Danny. But that he's now a percipient witness. And that means he witnessed something, he saw something or heard something that makes him a witness in the case. Well, what could that be? And like I said in my video, none of us would know except Karen Goldstein then said to the judge, well, your ju your, your honor, uh, if he did see bruising, and I was just like, oh my God, because, and, and I'm glad we can talk about this again because I didn't really explain it on my previous, on my video. The reason why that's such a big deal is that throughout the defense cross-examination, the thing I heard from other reporters was just how kind of minor the things were that Cohen was going after. But it felt like he scored a couple of good points. One was these photos she's got. You know, her testimony is after the attack, they immediately flew to Florida that night, her family, and spent about a week and a half in Florida. And during that time, you know, bruises began appearing on her body after, you know, some time had passed since she was with Danny. And that they were very embarrassing. And so, so for example, one of the things examples she gave is she had to wear shorts over her bikini because her hips were bruised. Um, and that's all fine as testimony, but then they only have, she only has two photos from that trip and they both show her in a bikini holding up a drink. So it, it's, and she pointed out some spots that were bruising. And I was way back in the far last row. So I can't swear to, you know, that there's not bruising on those pictures, but it was hard to see from where I was. It wasn't like this obvious picture of somebody who's black and blue. So, you know, that that left an impression. I think that left an impression in the room that hmm, these, these photographs don't exactly back up what she's saying. So to hear that Sean Fabos has now told the DA something, they're making him a recipient witness, and that it has something to do with the bruising, that's pretty huge. Because apparently, you know, if, if you take the implication, she went to Florida, she developed all these bruises from the attack, she came home. He's the first one she really told what had happened with Danny. And now he's going to testify that while she was telling him this, about a week and a half after the attack, he saw bruises. That's that's pretty big, I think. I, Tony, it, 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 you know, my take on it was, one, I, I, I saw the photos, and I could see areas that definitely looked bruised. Okay. Uh, she you, were, pointed you, to them. You, you were closer to them than I am. I was I was farther back in the courthouse than you were. Yeah. Than you were. I could see them, but what also came to mind, and this will come to, two things came to mind. Delayed onset of trauma. That was the first thing I thought of that's normal in automobile accidents, beatings, assaults, is delayed onset of trauma, 24 to 48 to 72 hours. That's how long it could take trauma to appear in some cases. So I'm thinking, to me, that's perfectly legitimate explanation. 
and I could see the areas. They were darkened. Well, the photos uh, were taken. The photos she flew on the night of the twenty. The, the, the attack was at one a two or two a.m. on April twenty fifth. She flew to Florida on the twenty fifth. Those photos were time stamped April thirtieth. So there was plenty of time for the bruises to have shown up it to be in those photos. Like you said, you saw some. You probably you know maybe maybe it's just a matter of being closer to the pictures. I just didn't see them as well. But what's what's really interesting is then she came home, and now Sean Fabos is going to testify to seeing bruising. So that's again, you know, we, she she's getting things backed up, and and I think that helps her case. Yeah, and Tony, I just can I end on one one strange thing that uh, yeah, the judge. This is just a point uh, uh, as a private investigator that I noticed that 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 um, Cohen was trying to do. Do you remember where he's talking? And this is, you know, we we talked about this, Tony, but when Cohen's talking about, he refers to his client as Masterson, he doesn't use the word alleged. So he's talking to Jane Doe 1 yesterday, and he's saying, and when you were in the room with Masterson and the gun uh, during the rape, he's just saying it like that. Really? Well, yeah. and then uh, and another another journalist pointed out to me that he couldn't believe how much this guy uses these body parts in this language, you know. And I couldn't. I, mean, you know I couldn't either. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, and and let me finish what I'm going to, and then he goes, "Now, you testified that Masters was was on top of you, strangling you," and she said, "No, I didn't use the word strangle." And I knew what was, I knew what Cohen was trying to set up because she's saying choking and he's trying to force strangling into the narrative. And the reason this, and he's saying, so Masters was on top of you, bent over, that's your testimony, put, you know, his weight on your windpipe, strangling you, no, choking. Okay, but choking you, he's over you, choking you, putting his weight down. What he's trying to get to, and he said, now, I'm not an expert, but, and the judge just stopped him because she saw what I saw, (laughs) I think. Yeah. In a strangulation, almost always the hyoid bone in the neck is broken. It's a small bone. Okay. In an autopsies, uh, it's very common in strangulation by death to see that little bone broken. He was trying to get to where... Because he was saying, did you go see a doctor in Florida? You know, he's pushing on her. Did you go see, were yeah. you concerned? And she's obviously in shock and trying to process it, trying to hide it from her parents, trying to be the good Scientologist, right? Yeah. He's trying to get her to say, well, if he was strangling you, that bone would have been broken and you would have known it. And I'm so glad the judge cut him off. And, mm. but... But this is almost like one of those things that so how he set it up was so awful to try to get to a question. Why wasn't that bone broken? He had to go through. My client was strangling you during the there was the gun and the rape and it was dark. And I'm thinking, what? look, just on, on an analysis, that's not even rational to do. You don't do that much damage to your client to try to get to, so was that little bone broken in your throat? <laughs> it's like, no, that's, what the... Yeah, that's, and that's what this other journalist was saying to me, that, you know, he kept saying, well, when my client's penis went into your anus, you know, he's like, oh. I, would, I would, you know, now the prosecutor has to do that. I mean, the prosecutor absolutely has to use language like that because 
that's literally the charge. You know, you sure you you can't have a rape charge. You need that. You need to be very explicit. His body part going into her body part. You have to say those words. I, yep. I'm, I'm sure Mueller doesn't enjoy it, but he knows that's part of his job. But the defense and uh, this lawyer that I knew, uh, journal, lawyer journalist, was saying, I couldn't believe he was doing that. He said it over and over and over. And it's just, it's, it's. Uh, I don't know. Cohen, I don't know what Cohen thought he was doing with that. I don't know. I've, if I were Masterson, I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if he's thinking, uh, hey, I'm paying you to say alleged, alleged, alleged. What's going on? Because when this was going on, Masterson was like, tr- like, staring at him, like he, he wasn't comprehending, like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm paying you nine fifty an hour, nine hundred fifty bucks an hour, and you're not putting in an alleged. Did you go to law school? I mean, <laughs> get that kind of quizzical look. So, well, you know, we'll never know, but what you know, here it is. It's crunch time. And we're ready for and, next week, Tony. Well, I mean, it's crunch time, and he does not have Tom Mesro doing this. He does not have Sean Hawley doing this. He's got this guy, Philip Cohen, that's not as well-known. And I don't know. I don't think it's going that well for him. But you never know. You never know what the jury's thinking. No, you and, don't. And uh, it's, early, it's still early in the case. It's still early. And, and Monday, we've got some really interesting witnesses coming. And we're going to have... Marty Singer and Sean Favos, and who knows, pretty soon we're going to have Lisa Marie Presley. Wow. Well, we're having fun in the courtroom, aren't we, Jeffrey? It's utterly fascinating. It is utterly just so fascinating because you're seeing Scientology in real life, how it really is, how it really works. And it's, I got to say, up close and personal, it's brutal. It's horrific to watch what Jane Doe. I, I was driven. I, I, I felt like I, I wanted to cry. You know, you have to, when, when she was testifying, my, my heart was breaking, the anguish, the pain. It was very real. Yeah. And you just have to, in court, you can't do it, you know. But it was it was very, very painful to watch the agony she went through and her courage. Her courage to stand there and face her accuser. And, and that took and, a lot. And, and also... It's maybe the most Scientological thing in the room besides what's going on between Jane Doe one and uh, Danny Masterson in the room and all the stuff that's being said, maybe the most Scientological thing in the room is watching all this are Alana and Jordan Masterson who disconnected from their father yeah. 17 years ago and are sitting there supporting their Scientologist brother, Danny Masterson. And, uh, hmm. you know, they never get asked about that. Never. And their dad is a great guy, Joe Raish. So anyway, okay. Uh, listen, Jeffrey, thank you. Uh, this has been quite a week for us. And uh, next week's going to be just as interesting. And thanks for helping me out with this podcast. Oh, thanks for having me on, Tony. Pleasure. Uh, all right, talk to you later. Bye. Now I'm hunker down in bunker town again, again, again to witness history. Ride the storm, wait to see how reckoning. Yeah.